1: Hello and welcome back to New Books in Language, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm John Weston and today I'll be talking with David Adger about his 2019 book Language Unlimited, The Science Behind Our Most Creative Power. David Adger is Professor of Linguistics at Queen Mary University of London where he is Head of the School of Languages, Linguistics and Film. He has served as President of the Linguistics Association of Great Britain since 2015, He has authored a number of monographs on syntactic theory, as well as the widely used undergraduate textbook, Core Syntax, A Minimalist Approach, published by Oxford University Press in 2003. Today, we'll be talking about David's 2019 book out now called Language Unlimited, The Science Behind Our Most Creative Power, also published by Oxford University Press. David, thank you for making time to talk to me today about your new book. Uh, What have you been working on lately? Um,
0: Well, aside from the book and aside from being head of school, um, I'm just back recently from a trip where I did some fieldwork in um, Kenya. So it's part of a project that um, is actually uh, the main investigator is Jenny Culbertson, who's at the University of Edinburgh, but also involved are myself and Klaus Abels from UCL, and we have um, a postdoc, Alex Martin, on it. And that project is to look at the syntax of noun phrases in a kind of new and interesting experimental way. So what we're doing is um, we're looking at this old observation that uh, Joseph Greenberg, a very famous uh, linguistic typologist, um, made back in, I think it was the 50s or 60s. And he noted, looking at a sample of about 30 languages or so, that when you say uh, something like uh, those three big oranges... Languages order those kinds of words in two very common ways. One very common way is the way that English does it. So you say those three big oranges. And another really common way is the way that Thai does it, where they basically reverse the English order. And you get, uh, you get, um, oranges, big three, those. So those are two very common ways of doing it. And we've been running a project which actually stems from a paper that Jenny and I published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences back in 2014, I think it was, um, where we, we kind of taught speakers of English a kind of made-up language. We used English words, but we said the language had a different kind of grammar. And really, um, so what we taught them was that in this language, you said things like, orange is big, or cat's three, or, you know, cup's those. So they knew that the noun came first, and then they knew that words like those and big and, and or, you know, green and whatever came after the noun, but we didn't tell them uh, wh- what the order would be. And the idea behind that was to test whether they had a bias in their minds um, to order them in the ways that are most common typologically, the ways that are most common that appears in languages. So it turned out they do. But there are some difficulties with that method that we used. We used English words because we were really interested in uh, addressing the question of do people store linguistic knowledge just in terms of surface order or not? So we wanted to know whether the people's surface orders the, of English words would come through, and it didn't. What comes through is the is the fact that adjectives come closer to the noun than numerals do, and numerals come closer than words like this and that. These are called demonstratives, too. So this is a long way around I'm saying that we got a big project to actually extend uh, this methodology and make it better and apply it to speakers whose native languages were not English. So we've done some work on Thai speakers, since Thai is the other uh, common order. And we actually showed that when we improved the methodology, it still turns out to be the case that English, or, sorry, English speakers like to keep the structure of uh of the language. They kind of guess that the language they're learning has a structure that's similar to English, that is with the adjective closest to the noun and then the number and then the word like this or those. Um, and that and not the order. So that's different. If you think about it, so what, what we, we teach them, you know, this new language and what they end up doing is transferring across the structure. And that's what the Thai speakers do as well. But we wanted to check whether this really also happens um, with speakers of um, native languages, which are quite different. So in Kenya, there is a language, uh, Bantu language, called Kedaraka. And in this language, um, they say the noun first, like you do in Thai, but then they have the English order after that. So you say something like, um, oranges, these three big. So we wanted to go and find out what was going on with speakers of that language. Would they transfer over the surface order of Kedaraka? Or would they transfer over the structure? And that's, that's what we've been looking at. And my job when I went out there to Kenya, which was amazing, it was an amazing field trip, Um, was really just to figure out what was going on with the syntax of Ketheraka noun phrases. So I spent most of my time just with native speakers of the language trying to figure out what the real basic structure of the Ketheraka noun phrase was. And I ate an enormous amount of goats and I got food poisoning and there was no showers and I had to shower with the water that I was making the tea with in the morning and they had 24 hours a day they were building things around us so there was just like, you know, you could barely record anything because it was just the sound of hammers beating against bricks all the time. But, you know, it was an amazing, amazing time. And we got some really interesting data. So I've just written an abstract for, I don't know if it'll get accepted or not, but for a Bantu um, conference, uh, where we're going to see whether, I, I mean, basically, we, I'm going to take some of the results that uh, we got from that. So that was a, that's what I've been working on most recently. And it's been a very interesting experience
1: sounds brilliant yeah i'm glad you you gave some of the gory day-to-day details because it was sounding pretty uh pretty nice for a minute there and i was a bit jealous but yeah like we them. did
0: we, we did go and see we, we saw some elephants and giraffes and hippopotamuses <clears> as well when we we drove into one of the parks for a day um and that Wonderful. was pretty good but we almost ran out of petrol <laughs> so we were driving around the park desperately trying to find effectively the way out and really worried that we're just going to be stranded in the middle of this park with no petrol in the car. So yeah, it was, it was an interesting experience. Absolutely.
1: I think there's probably quite a few more stories in there, but I want to get back to the thing you were saying there about um, looking at a bias in the mind uh, regarding Mm. related to word order, which I think you're talking about universal grammar in some way there. So uh, maybe we can get onto the, um, the substance of your book, um, which is a popularization about some of these ideas, isn't it? So, I mean, the preface and chapter one start with a really beautifully written call to linguistics by which, I mean, you you recognize and draw our attention to the remarkableness of of the linguistic ability of humans. Um, Can you say a bit about how you discovered that linguistics was a thing and what you mean by linguistic creativity in this book?
0: Yeah, so, I mean, in the preface for the book, I kind of uh, tell this story, uh, which is a true story of, Me reading, um, uh, what's still one of my favorite books, A Wizard of Earthsea by Ursula Le Guin. Um, and, uh, I just remember, you know, being totally puzzled about that book because they had the, the wizards in this book had this power, right? And it was all revolved around language. Um, but their special language they used to cast spells and things like that had a word for absolutely everything. And that made me really puzzled, and I must have been 10 or 11 when I read this, uh, because I was thinking, like, how could you have a word for everything? How can you have the word for... There's a very beautiful bit in the book where she talks about how her protagonist is learning... Um, uh, this magical language and how he needs to learn the words for like every tiny gullet and whirlpool in the sea, if he wants to cast a spell in the sea, but it made me kind of think, well, what about, you know, the foam that appears in a wave for a moment? Does he need, does that have its own word, you know, which is different from the foam from the next word? And How can you, how can you actually have a word for everything? Cause reality itself is in bits, obviously, I think my 10-year-old thinking was not quite sophisticated as this. But that I remember that wonder of thinking about that. And that actually kind of got me interested in language. And I used, you know, my parents were like, why is David up in his room making up languages when all the other boys are out playing football? <laughs> and, uh, and that's really like been sort of the story of my linguistic life. I mean, I've just been really interested in that. And I think at some point it just became clear to me that the thing that does have this power the power to maybe not cast spells on, but the power to describe or talk about every aspect of our existence is not the words themselves, but actually the way we put them together. So the way that we put words together is what gives us this capacity to, to describe our existence. It's what gives us uh, the ability, which seems to be something which only humans have as far as we know, I mean, maybe aliens, right, but we don't know about that, um, to, to both talk about the world as we see it but also I think even more interestingly to create worlds of the imagination and uh I think that's where a lot of what humanity's um capacities for doing what it does whether that's for good or bad comes from it's this it's this ability that we have with language to create uh ways of thinking that we wouldn't have before and for me that's that's uh that's, that's always been one of the most interesting aspects of what language is, and it's probably what drives my thinking about this. And you know, at some point, I discovered that this wasn't my question at all. <laughs> it was a question that actually Chomsky had made very clear, and, and he points out that it was a question that Descartes had made very clear. And so this is a question that probably goes back into the mists of time, uh, people thinking about language, which is... How? What is what underpins, what gives us this capacity to use language so unbelievably creatively. So that's what the book's about at some level. It doesn't really answer that question. It doesn't say, but it gives us a sense of what the mechanisms are in our minds that allow we humans to use language in this incredibly creative fashion. So that was kind of what, you know, I didn't even really know the book was about that when I was writing it. I thought it was going to be more, you know, oh, how I'm going to explain linguistics to like people who've never done it before. But actually, mm. as I was and I, I was thinking of it as you know paradox, and I don't know at some point it suddenly became clear that actually this is what it was about.
1: Mm. um so you've you've just mentioned what you're calling creativity in this book. It's not kind of creativity mm. in the in in maybe the everyday sense, but it's a special kind of linguistic creativity. and you, and you link that to, um, some properties of language, which is the what you call the sense of structure, which is um,
0: yeah.
1: that we have an, a knack of telling whether a sentence is part of our language or not, or whether it's something wrong with it. Uh, then, then you also mentioned the idea of compositionality of building up complex structures from small bits, uh, and, yeah. and 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 the third strand that you bring in is the idea of recursivity of self-similarity. And I wondered if you could say how those together give you this thing that you're calling creativity your your notion of creativity
0: so i think like i mean i want to be clear about the notion of creativity so it's it's the fact that i think what's really the most important thing is that we're able to use language creatively so um so use is very important but to use something there needs to be something that you're using so uh the question is what are the properties of the thing that you're using that allows you to be creative with it. Hmm. So, you know, when I, I mean, there's been a whole slew of things on Twitter recently where people are like, are like today is an amazingly weird creative sentence. And, you know, I think the most recent one was, it was something about, I'm going to make this up. And it was something about, you know, Uh, zebras addicted to the taste of human urine were airlifted from a field in Arkansas or something, right? I mean, just craziness. I mean, this was actually described in the real world, but like, you know, it's totally crazy in a sense. So that's the creative use of language, right? That's what allows us to use it. But then to use something, there needs to be the something that you use and it needs to have the properties that allow that creative use. So the properties that you just mentioned um, the, the, the fact that language has a particular kind of structure and the fact that that structure builds larger meanings out of smaller meanings and the fact that that structure is never-ending in a sense. You, it allows you to do almost anything. You, I mean, it, it, I shouldn't say it like that. What it allows you to do is to take the bits and pieces and put them together in ways that are continually new. So those three aspects, the ones that you identified, Structure, the way that meaning uh, connect, larger meanings connect to smaller meanings within that structure, and the never-endingness, the the, the open-ended potentiality of that structure. Those are the things that uh, I mean. Chomsky has been arguing for a long, long time. But those are the things that give us the capacity to use language creatively. If language didn't have those things, then there is a question: Would we be able to use it so creatively? Um, and that, I think that's an open question, to be honest. I mean, you can maybe imagine other kinds of systems that are also intensely creative that don't have those things, at least in terms of, you know, the, the, the structure and the way that meaning is built up through that structure. But actually the open-endedness of it, the recursivity of it, uh, seems to be something that I mean, at least we don't know of any other ways of getting an open-ended creative system without something like that. Um, so you know, maybe that's the kind of key point that that makes language so able to be used creatively. So I think that the thing I'm trying to say here is that it's not that language itself is creative; it's that language itself has properties which allow us to use it creatively. Hmm. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, it does. Is that distinct? Is that kind of like the notion of generativity, or is that a distinct?
0: It's very close. I mean, yeah. So I think it's very, very close. All of the, I mean, let's not get into kind of tiny little technical differences between words that mean certain things when you use them mathematically and other things when you use them in a more common sense term. But yeah, so the notion of generative grammar, which is the kind the approach to grammar that Chomsky developed way back in the fifties and sixties. The the idea behind that is that it's a a way of thinking about what is the thing that's in our minds that give us the 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 property of language which makes it so open ended. Um, mm-hmm. So that is, uh, and, and the answer to that is you need what's mathematically called a generative system, right? Uh, or uh, which essentially enumerates an open ended collection of things that connect sound and meaning across an, a domain which has no end to it. So, I mean, then you get to the maths of it, and you're like, okay, mm-hmm. well, what kind of system can that be? Um, and uh, there's a question of what kind of system can it be? And also, what kind of a system is it? Mm-hmm. So what's the best theory we have of that system? And from my perspective, I think the best theory we have of that system, the one that answers that question best is a system which is underlyingly generative at heart. And I think most people who think hard about language agree with that. Not everyone, but, uh, you know, even if you look at um, construction grammarians, for example, uh, who would, you know, distance themselves from this particular way of thinking, um, they will say that language has generativity. They will say that there is an open-ended combinatoriality to it um, it's just that they think that that open-ended combinatoriality comes through systems which are not specific to language, which emerge from other aspects of our cognition or of our social function or of other things like that. So I think even even those people that would distance themselves from Chomsky's emphasis on, uh, on this creative capacity for language uh, still recognise that, the, the generativity of language is something that's very, very hard to get away from. I think it's a real, you know, something. It's a really good insight into what language actually is. Mm.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, you say in chapter one that the the controversy that you set out in chapter one is not about whether or not language is generative or creative in the sense that you've been talking about, but it's it's where that comes from, and and as you just mentioned, whether there are specific linguistic. Uh, modular structures in the mind which have some kind of linguistic information from birth that we then use yeah uh, when we learn our first language, that idea is controversial whether whether or it's in, in the very broadest conception of what linguistics as a discipline is that's that's a controversial uh, claim. Uh, can you say a bit about why that position is controversial?
0: Yeah, so I think so people often get hung up on the question of innate and i think innate is sort of not remotely not really very relevant so you know all people across i mean i mean all psychologists these days or anyone interested in the human mind thinks there's a lot of stuff that's innate right mm. um so we we're not born with a blank slate in our minds uh, but rather we come with all sorts of uh Um, capacities which structure our experiences in particular kinds of ways that are distinct from how other species structure their experiences. So there's something about the human mind. And then one of the questions is, um, within that, are there only just sort of very general capacities? And we have a lot of power with those capacities, we humans, and that power allows us to do something like language. Or is it the case that uh, that there is something special about the structure of the human brain, and that's what gives us the capacity to do language? So I think I put it in the book as something like, you know, do we have more oomph than other animals, more intellectual power, or do we just have a different oomph? That is, we just do something that's distinct from what other animals do. Um, and so the the I think that those are two perfectly reasonable way perfectly reasonable research programs. My gut, I mean, the thing is, it's all about what you think is most plausible and what you think is likely to give you the deepest insight into what you're studying. And for me, uh, I think it's most plausible that we have a different oomph. Um, and that's where the controversy is. The controversy is, you know, um, is it just ger- general learning mechanisms? And we have a lot of them, and that's why all human beings but no animals seem to have this particular capacity, uh, the capacity for open-ended creation of hierarchical structures, which gives us the creative use of language? Or is it that there is a particular twist, uh, a a particularity about humans that gives us this? Um, And I have not been convinced over my career uh, yet, in a way, that general learning mechanisms are sufficient uh to explain the very intriguing particular uh things about human language that appear to crop up in language after language after language with uh actually probably not enough evidence in the language that some of that stuff should be there so you know at, at one level it's it's um connected to this poverty of stimulus question that people talk about, that is, how do we know things about our language where where there doesn't seem to be enough evidence in the data? And then there's another thing, which is just the general usefulness of this way of thinking, looking across lots and lots and lots of different languages. So, for example, one case in point, and I mean, this is very, you know, in medias rays, it's very in the middle, uh, and I might be unconvinced of this, Later. But when I went to Kenya to look at the Kedaraka noun phrase, I was kind of quite, you know, I was thinking, so it's a funny structure. You say basically things like um, uh, uh, goat that black uh, one, right? Or goat that one black. So you say the noun first and then you say the word for the demonstrative that this those these, although Kedaraka has a lot more of them. Uh, and then you have a kind of choice. You either put the adjective, or you put the numeral, or you reverse that and you put the numeral and then the adjective. And so when I first went, I was like, "Oh, maybe Khmer just has a structure where the noun phrase just consists maximally of something like the noun and the demonstrative, and then after that, you just you don't have what's like you don't have what you have in English and Thai." which is adjectives and numerals in particular positions, rather you have something more like a relative clause. So you're saying something like that goat, which is black, and there's one of them, or and which is one, right? Or mm-hmm. those cats which are beautiful, which are three, that kind of thing. And relative clauses we know you can you can sort of swivel them around. So I thought to myself, maybe that's what's going on. So maybe Kideraka just has a different structure. But actually, over the um, 10 days or so where I did nothing but work on this, um, and I I looked at all sorts of fairly subtle evidence, so evidence, which is probably too subtle to go into here, but about how you coordinate noun phrases, when you can drop bits of noun phrases, what the possible types of adjectives are, and how you can mess them up with numerals and stuff like that. I actually surprised myself, and I got to the point of saying, oh, no, (laughs) actually, really, this is a structure which looks far more familiar to me. It looks like the structure that you've got in a language like English or a language like Thai. Uh, It's just that there's some funky stuff going on with some of the word order, but the underlying structure, the hierarchical structure, looks very similar. And that's an experience I've had often uh, when I work on languages which are." you know, quite different from European languages that you might know and love, Um, you kind of start going, okay, this looks really, really different. And actually, sometimes you want it to look really different because you want it, I mean, it's far more exciting if you can say, aha, this is wrong, you guys. You got this bit of the theory wrong, right? And actually, what I've ended up finding over and over again is, sure, there are differences, but those differences are familiar differences at some level. Um, you know, so I, I had a similar experience when I worked with Daniel Harbour and Laurel Watkins on Kiowa, where the word order of that language is very, very free. Um, but you look at, uh, um, if you look in detail carefully at uh, how Kiowa word order works, you're like, oh, it's a little bit like Japanese here, and it's a little bit like Italian here. And, you know, once you begin to poke into it, you see that actually the range of possible structures is not as differentiated as you might expect. So all of those things make me feel that actually a research program that says there's something quite specific about language, and if we have particular hypotheses about what that is, that can really give us insight into what happens when you look at more and more and more languages. And that's an that's an an intuition, a gut feeling that I think is different from um the gut feeling of researchers in other domains, uh in other, you know, sorry, in other approaches to linguistics, I should say, where their their notion is more actually know that this is done by general mechanisms and actually languages can be really quite different. And a lot of it will really just depend upon the cultural background of that and any uniformities you see emerge from pressures of communication and sociality rather than emerging from from pressures about how the grammar of the language should look. So that's the big controversy I think and you know I'm happy to say that I don't I can't possibly say that I am definitely right and those other guys are definitely wrong but the book is a general argument that this is not a crazy way of thinking about things and there's a lot of good evidence for it and it should be taken really quite seriously. And it can give us a lot of insight into how languages work.
1: Two strands that come out of that, which you said immediately, were the idea that minimalist syntax is a, is a productive theory uh, and it can it, it generates more questions and it seems to be getting closer to the answers and it matches the data across a wide typological field. Uh, with
0: challenges
1: (laughs) and and um, and yeah and that it provides the best explanation that you can think of Uh, the most parsimonious explanation of of that is something like um, syntactic minimalism that's a scientific program a, a scientific approach to language and it and it may be that part of the historical reason why that hasn't been universally accepted across people who study language is because linguistics and the study of language isn't just a scientific enterprise but it, it goes into other areas in the humanities and arts which tend to be a bit cautious about over applying very scientific approaches to to humans um so maybe that's part of the historical baggage of the humanities or do you want to say something about whether that's related to having a scientific outlook
0: yeah so that's, that's a really interesting point. Um, I mean, I think it goes back to the thing I said right at the very start, which is like, okay, well, let's try and figure out how we can use language so creatively. So there are two aspects to any answer to that. One is the word language and the other one is the word use. <laughs> so, um, I think partly what, you know, what the generative approach tr- tries to do is to provide an understanding of Um, some aspects of language which give it this open-ended capacity but they don't try to explain how people actually use it right Mm. so it's like what is the thing such that you can use it and then there's a deeper question I don't know it's a deeper question there's a different question which is how do people actually use this thing what do they actually do and of course We use it for all sorts of stuff. As I said, it's open-ended and creative. We use it to talk about, uh, you know, zebras being airlifted, and we use it to talk about phenomenology. I mean, uh, you know, we use language to express our identities. We use it to write poetry. We use it to, you know, write down our deepest, darkest thoughts. We use it to plan our actions. We use it to uh, create societies So all of that stuff, which I think is, you know, very classical sets of questions within the humanities and within the social sciences are all those fascinating questions about use. I don't think general linguistics has anything to say about that, really, Mm. beyond the fact. So what we have something to say about is what is this thing that's being used? I mean, so I have an analogy in the book, which I really like that came to you one day, which is uh, that so it's the difference between what something is and what something is used for, and it's alcohol, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, alcohol is used for lots of things. It's used to get us drunk. It's used, uh, you know, as an antifreeze. It's used uh, as a solution for, uh, for dissolving things in. It's, it's used for lots and lots of stuff. I mean, the main use in human societies is getting us drunk these days. Um, uh, but that's not what it is. Right. I mean, I will never remember the chemical formula for alcohol, but, you know, it's a collection of C's and H's and O's and little subscripted numbers. But, you know, to find out what alcohol is, you go and ask a chemist and a chemist tells you. And a chemist can also tell you why it can be used to get you drunk. It's got to do with how that particular molecule interacts with aspects of our uh, neurocognitive system. So I think that I see generative linguistics more along the lines of the chemistry bit. That is, it tells you what language is, what its structure is, such that that helps us understand what it can be used for. And uh, I would never for a millisecond say that, you know, that question, how is language actually used, is not an incredibly important and fundamental question. It's just a different question. You know, I mean, I think there's a fascinating question, which is, how is the human mind so constituted such that it has this ability? And then there's a second question, which is, how do human beings work such that they use this ability in the way that they use it? And those are two aspects of of studying language. And, I mean, you know, maybe unusually for someone who's in generative linguistics, I'm very pluralistic about these things. I think that it's really a case of, like, you know, people should – clever people should try and do what they find interesting and they will not all find the same things interesting. And we will learn from people studying things in depth. And I, you know, as you might know, I've, I've worked uh, over the last 10, 15 years very closely with sociolinguists who uh, have, um, you know, very different concerns uh, about, uh, about what language is. But actually to great extent, uh, they're really interested in how language is used and what, it, what that use tells us about how human beings work. That's a totally fascinating question. And I think that the two areas can absolutely talk to each other and they, they haven't talked to each other well enough over the last few decades. Um, but I think that they should do. And I actually spend a chunk of the last chapter in the book kind of going through how that might work
1: wonder if you could talk about that now, since you're on the topic of of the interaction between formal linguistics and sociolinguistics. A minute ago, you said that formal linguistics is kind of asking a question that doesn't really get at the same, fundamentally the same thing as sociolinguistics. Yet, you know, you've collaborated with sociolinguists. Do you feel like you've been looking at different parts of the problem without really meeting? Or do you think that you've actually been illuminating each other's work at a theoretical level?
0: I think that we have been opening questions which might lead to later illumination. <laughs> um, I, I I mean I think that so some of the work that I've done with Jen Smith and Jenny Cheshire uh, I think um, has been very focused on trying to understand particular data. So looking at you know how variation works and me building sort of theoretical models which can explain, uh, you know the range of variants that you see, and possibly even the frequencies of those variants. But understanding at the same time that uh, those frequencies are perturbable, of course, by uh, by you know the how how things are used, depending upon register, depending upon uh, you know soci- sociological um, categories. So. Yeah, you know, I think that there is absolutely a way to bring the two ways of thinking together, and I hope that you know some of that work that I've done has helped do that. But also, I think that there are demarcations. So, actually, in the book, I kind of point out that, you know, so if you have a, if you think about uh, language in this kind of generative way, um, you know, you want to say, okay, well, there is a thing. There's an aspect of our our cognitive systems, our mental systems, our psychological makeup that uh, looks like this. And this is the thing that gives us the capacity to use language creatively. So, you know, I kind of sketch out what I think that that, uh, not just what I think, but what the field thinks, the minimalist syntax field thinks about that. Uh, um, So you have something which is essentially, uh, it takes discrete elements, it combines them in hierarchical ways, uh, composing meanings as it does so in a never-ending fashion. But that thing is, you know, it doesn't see, for example, the continuous aspects of language. And that explains why grammars uh, tend to not have rules which refer to continuous aspects of the grammar. So we don't have grammars where, you know, to mark past tense, to mark that something's happened longer and longer and longer and longer and longer ago, you have a longer and longer and longer Mm and longer vowel or something like that. That kind of iconicity... Uh, is is not, I mean, you certainly see it in the fringes of language, but it's not embedded into how grammars work. Um, so, you know, why is that? That's because the core generative device just doesn't see continuousness. It sees discrete elements. But that doesn't mean to say that that continuous stuff is not absolutely then available and usable uh, in sociolinguistic ways. So you might use... Vowel length to mark sarcasm. You might use, uh, you know, um, the height of vowels uh, variability in the height of vowels to mark your identity as, you know, as a, uh, someone who's really kind of go-getting and fashionable, or someone who's laid back, or whatever. Right. Um, so all of these things that are continuous are available for us to use in uh, ways of marking sociolinguistic categories. Similarly with frequency, I think frequency works a bit like that as well, if there are multiple ways of saying something, then you can alter the frequencies of those to mark some kind of, some aspect which is not grammatical, but which is important to the message that you're communicating. Um, So in the last chapter of the book, I kind of point out that, you know, the generative approach actually, you know, provides ways of thinking about what the structures are, but actually leaves a lot open that can then be uh, modulated uh, to signal aspects of sociolinguistics. And of course, that's there's a feedback to that, right? So that those sociolinguistic uh, uh, modulations may end up being brought back into the grammar in some particular way, um, uh, marking something which is more grammatical again, because new generations of speakers might co-opt some of those things to to mark a particular grammatical feature. So I talk about some of the work that Jenny Cheshire and I did on multicultural London English, where we looked at relative clauses and showed that at least for the speakers we looked at at some point, those speakers were using variants of how you mark a relative clause, whether you say who or that effectively, um, In you know the boy who I saw and the boy that I saw, whether you use that to mark topicality or not. Um, and, you know, so so all of the, that variance can be used for purely sociolinguistic stuff, but it can also be used for marking information structure and register, and that can feed back into the grammar um, in a limited fashion. I don't think it feeds back in that. It doesn't bring in the sociolinguistic categories, uh, but that sociolinguistic um, use can shape the kinds of ways that grammars uh, develop. Um, so I, I think that there is absolutely... Really interesting and fascinating and exciting uh, ways for sociolinguists um, to talk to generative syntacticians morphologists and phonologists of course uh, about um, you know about how we can understand language in a more holistic kind of fashion
1: in in, in chapter two um, just going back to this idea about um, what I think you referred to a second ago is the fringes of language, where you have, you know, it, using emojis, you can you can repeat the same symbol, yeah, in analogous way to lengthening a vowel for sarcasm. Exactly. Can you say a bit more about um, the case of emojis and the use of symbols in language?
0: I always feel like I shouldn't really say anything about the use of emojis, considering uh, Gretchen McCulloch has just uh, published an absolutely fabulous book, but about internet language uh, and really you should ask Gretchen about those things. Um, uh, I mean, in the book, I don't really say anything. I think that is, is uh, too surprising. I actually build off of some of Gretchen uh, and Lauren Ghosn's ideas that um, the emojis are sort of like metalinguistic gestures. Um, that is that they're, they're not really like part of the grammatical system of a language. Uh, what they do instead is they add uh, different aspects of meaning to the messages that we convey. Um, so Lauren and Gretchen have uh, some work where they showed that, you know, as you just said, you you repeat emojis over and over again to, you know, have a stronger message uh, in a sense. And um, we do that with some words. So you can say, yeah, this is a red, 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 red car or something. But it's not really something which is, you know, at the heart of how grammar works. Uh, it's something uh, which is really a different kind of meaning. Actually, I touch on this in the final chapter as well, where I talk about uh, some of Chris Potts's work in pragmatics. Uh, um, he has these uh, cases where he looks at, I don't know, I can't really swear probably in this podcast, but he has uh, uses where he looks at uh, things like um, the use of expletives, uh, so swear words within sentences which express you know, not some descriptive aspect of meaning like normal adjectives do, but really something about the emotional intensity of what the speaker feels about them. So we have all these aspects of language and they're fascinating and should be used, you know, and there's uh, there's recent work on uh, onomatopoeia and uh, all sorts of, you know, I, 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 when I said fringes of language, I, I maybe should have said fringes of grammar. That makes more sense. they're they're totally interesting and absolutely completely worthy of study. And I find them fascinating because they tell us about the use aspect of language. Right. And they tell us also about how grammar structures, some aspects of our meaning and how things that are extra grammatical structure, other aspects of our meaning. So I make an argument in that final chapter that some of the Chris Potts works uh, were, so if you say like, you know, a bloody don't want to bloody see that bloody idiot again, you know that bloody is uh, is being. I don't use the word bloody in the book actually, but that bloody is uh, is um, a way of mildly expressing your irritation, and it's kind of interposed linearly throughout the structure at certain points. But and it has, but its grammar is a different kind of grammar from the grammar of other adjectives, for example, and that linearness of it is again something that is not really, in a sense, seen by the grammatical systems, and that's why it can be used to express this other dimension of meaning.
1: You distinguish the use of emojis as signs uh, from sort of uh, natural linguistic signs, maybe we could call it that. Um, But Mm. is that distinction then about this continuousness versus discrete representation? Because you also bring this idea of an extended symbol in as well.
0: Yeah, so I think it's it's partly about that. It's also about um, so I have a discussion. I, get, I guess this comes a bit later on in the chapter where I discuss constructed languages. Um, it's it's also connected to the question of what kinds of meanings can be in grammar. Um, so you know, we can have all sorts of kinds of meanings in words right so if you take a word like i don't know giraffe or something like that uh you know there's there's a complex meaning in that word giraffe right um and uh that's a meaning which is a bit fuzzy at the edges uh i mean philosophers have uh you know spent millennia (laughs) attempting to figure out you know what word meanings really are um and so lexical semantics and there are some absolute coherent uh, systematicities to that, but there's also sort of fuzzy edges to it, which has got to do, again, with how we use those things. Um, grammar, it's really interesting, I think, that grammar tends to um, end up focusing on the same concepts over and over and over again in different languages. So, you know, the concepts of um, you know how to relate the speech act the act of speaking to the local situation whether that's in time or in space for example so that that gives you tense and it gives you location and those things are very often grammaticalized the other aspects of the speech situation right you know the uh whether the speaker considers it to be a dangerous situation or not, for example, those things don't end up being inside the grammar, per se. You don't have, uh, you know, a verb inflecting not for tense, but whether the situation is dangerous or not, Mm. and so on, right? And that that's kind of, you might think, oh, maybe that's just something that's missing. But what's really fascinating is that actually, you know, notions like tense, or notions like evidentiality, which is another thing I talk about in the book, which is you know how much evidence a speaker has for the uh, the thing that they're saying. Those things appear over and over and over again in languages, very unrelated languages, and yet dangerousness just doesn't, and right. other useful, other potentially useful things don't. So grammar seems to co-opt some subset of the vast range of concepts that we humans have. And it seems to ignore some other subset of those concepts. And that, for me, has always been really interesting. So, I mean, is that really true? If it's true, I think it is. If it's true, how are those concepts co-opted? Why are it, Why is it that it's those concepts that are co-opted? And when they get co-opted into grammar, why do they organise themselves in the way they do? And do they organise themselves in a fairly uniform way? So that goes back to the discussion about the field trip to Kenya. You know, There's a sense in which the concepts of you know colour, or some, uh, modification of a noun by some property of that noun, and the concept of counting the numbers of those nouns, and the concept of identifying those nouns, those things tend to be sort of uh, tend to appear in a particular configuration with respect to the noun itself. So modification is close to the noun, and then you have number, and then you have the identification, the this or those or whatever. You know, that's what it looks like. And then you have languages like Quechua where it doesn't look like that. So then you go and look at them in depth, and you're like, oh, it does look like that. So you know, I think it's really fascinating that it's just some subset of, of all the concepts we have that end up in grammar and they end up when you look carefully being organized in very similar ways across grammars so those are things that we now go back to this general question about you know are you know is there something specific about humans that makes us different from animals our different oomph? and I think this is this is some evidence for different oomph right that we have specific concepts we co-opt into grammar and not other ones and they are yeah. organized when they're co-opted in particular kinds of ways that's a different thing from the creativity that's something that constrains that creativity in a sense right yeah. it constrains the expression of that creativity and that that is part of what i would say is universal grammar And i think that you know the evidence as far as i'm concerned for that is very strong mm-hmm maybe there's a way of deriving that. I would really love it to be the case that there's a way of deriving this from other things. So uh, Martina Vilchko has uh, a book out where she attempts to do it. Uh, Gillian Ramchand has been working on, on this set of questions for a while and also attempts to do it in different ways. I think all, these are all really interesting attempts, but I think we're really at the start of this research programme. So I think it's very fascinating research program. Mm. Have I wandered away from what you asked me? I may have done. Sorry, very
1: far indeed. I just wanted to <laughs> ask you a couple of follow up questions, just to uh, about the um, those concepts out of the full range. You know, you were saying the, the uh, danger or non-danger is never grammaticalized. It's mm. never made into a, a morphological part of a, a mandatory ending. In a, a, whereas something like evidentiality, which we don't have in the same way in English, uh, in some languages that is a that is a bolt on ending for a word i yeah. saw it or i heard it from from yeah. somebody else you have to mark that ma- um, compulsorily and every time you use a verb um but do you think that that set i mean you just kind of said you hope there's going to be some nice way of deriving that set and only that set from some first principles yeah did you think that is going to end up being part of the the language module do you think that is going to be something that is linguistically specific or do you think that that's likely to come from more general cognitive tools
0: so here's here's a way of thinking about this which i think is a way that maybe everyone can get behind but maybe not uh, it's a way of thinking about it that pierce Venonius and i sketched out in a paper back in 2015 um, i think it was published in frontiers in psychology i'm not sure um, and it goes like this uh, So. You know, there's all these concepts, and some of the that are just part of you know our conceptual system, and some of them get used in language. Um, so those concepts can come from outside of language, absolutely, but there has to be a little, a little twist or a little you know like like a hook. If you imagine you've got a little bit of a hook, which sort of says, okay, I'm going to use this for grammar. <laughs> And that little hook just hooks out into the rest of the brain and hooks in. It grabs hold of tense, say, and it doesn't grab hold of dangerousness, right? So it's just the hook, in a sense, that is universal grammar. Mm. And you can even think of this uh, with respect to the notion of the generative device itself, the thing that creates structure. Maybe that is outside. Maybe that's a general thing in general cognition. But... We need to still say that there's a hook from the linguistic thing, something linguistic that says, I'm using this. I'm using this gen, you know, maybe it's a plan making or who knows, but I'm using that in language. Hmm. right? So the universal grammar bit sort of reaches out into the rest of cognition and grabs the thing and pulls it in to grammar. So maybe all there really is of universal grammar is the set of hooks that combines all these various other things that are in, our, are in our minds in a particular kind of way. That's not what Chomsky says, right? So that's not what um, the Hauser-Chomsky-Fitch famous article said. Um, but you can imagine that, right? You can That would be a way of saying, this is a view of universal grammar that says it's the configuration in the human mind of all of these various kinds of, of things that are not, you know, not specific to language, but they're pulled into language in a particular kind of way. I think that probably lots of people could get behind that. I'm not sure if everyone could. (laughs) Um, uh, And I think that maybe even something like that is true. Um, I don't think that we have evidence that that's how it works. Currently, you know, I, I would say that the evidence is stronger, that there is something quite specific about language that works in particular kinds of ways. But that's just maybe because I don't understand how to deal with the really intricate peculiarities of uh, of human grammatical systems, except by saying that. Um, but I don't necessarily... And I think you do need to say something specific. You need to explain why every human being, putting aside pathology, has grammar and no other creature that we've been able to discover on the planet has grammar there needs to be something to be said about the human mind there, right? Um, So, you know, it may be that Neanderthals also had that or, you know, or other hominid species also had that, but we're the only ones left. So, you know, it could be that that is a very highly specific thing. It could be that it is just purely, we're just more generally clever. I don't think that's correct. But it could also be that our general cleverness is kind of pulled into... A particular configuration that the human brain has that says use this and this and this and this for language and not that 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 and that and all of that might be what we that that might be the sole content of ug is a collection of hooks that hook out into the rest of cognition and say use these things for language mm. did that make sense
1: That does make sense, yeah. So that speaks to whether these things ultimately end up being called part of the language module or or whether they are part of general systems that are co-opted by the the language module.
0: So they're general systems, but the language module does co-opt would be that that perspective
1: yeah yeah thanks for that you talk about a lot of other strands of evidence or or reasons for thinking or modeling or explaining what universal grammar could be and in chapter three where you introduce this um a sense of structure this notion of sensing or having an awareness of linguistic form um, can you say a bit about just back to basics of linguistic evidence why does the fact that structural ambiguities exist count as evidence for universal grammar
0: well, I don't think it, I mean, it, it counts as evi- I don't think that that counts as evidence for universal grammar per se. I think it does kind of. Well, let me let me nuance that in just a second. Um, so, if we take uh, um, an example of structural ambiguity. Um, so I think I, I use one in the book about a pot dealer mm. who got off of uh one count of um something dubious he was doing um because uh you know he would have got an extra penalty if he'd been dealing drugs near a public park or playground, and his lawyers argued that um that since he was dealing drugs near a private playground yeah. it didn't count <laughs> um so there's a structural ambiguity there that the lawyers took advantage of. Um, and I guess what structural ambiguity shows us is that the linear order just looking at the pure linear uh, string of words isn't sufficient uh, to explain how language works because structural ambiguities are there but then they vanish when you uh, when you structurally modify the sentences um as everyone will know from you know baby linguistics if we've done that so I think that Um, This is really an evidence for the sense of structure rather than for universal grammar. So the sense of, and I give lots of other evidence in that chapter to do with um, what's called syntactic priming and I give evidence from neuro-linguistic experiments and so on, Um, just to sort of show that we humans really from an incredibly early age, when we have a bit of language, you know, sort of aimed at us, the way we try and organise that in our understanding is by cutting it up into... Hierarchically structured uh, configuration, and that just seems to be what we do. For all the evidence from how languages work, and from neurolinguistic linguistic and psycholinguistic experiments, suggests that, and virtually everyone agrees with it. I mean, there are some people who don't, but virtually everyone, virtually all linguists do. So that's not evidence for universal grammar, because you could imagine, of course, that you know maybe this hierarchical structure comes from something else. But it is evidence for at least the version, weak version of universal grammar I just gave. Because then you might ask, so why don't some languages just work on the grounds of linear organization? Yeah. Right. So why is it the case that you know we don't know of a language where, for example, subject-verb agreement um, really pays attention to the closest noun phrase? When we do know very few cases that I might talk about in a second, in very particular configurations with coordination. But in general, you know, subjects agree with, sorry, verbs agree with their subjects. They don't agree with the closest noun phrase inside their subject. And that's quite surprising because generally subjects only have one noun phrase in them. So, you know, kids learning a language, we have a vast amount of evidence that they should just agree with whatever the closest noun phrase in the subject is, because that closest noun phrase will just be the only noun phrase. However, kids don't uh, do that. I mean, I should, I should say, that I shouldn't say kids don't do that. I should say languages in general don't end up like that. Because, of course, we do make mistakes. Uh, so, you know, you do find um, errors where people will agree with the closest noun phrase. I yeah. bet you, if you look through this transcription, you'll find a ton of them. <laughs> um, but actually, the, the way that languages work work in general, they don't do this. And it's, it's true not just for written languages with, you know, complex codified grammars, it's also true for, uh, you know, languages which have never been written down. We don't know of languages which work on the organizing principle that you mark the verb for whatever happens to just be the closest noun phrase. Mm. Um, That's just not really seen. So, um, but, why not? I mean, so, you know, if if you could just have grammar working on a purely linear basis you might imagine that you might find a language that did that. We don't find such languages. So, you know, you'd you'd want to say something along the lines of, well, whatever it is the language is, it kind of obligatorily has to work on a hierarchical basis. And that means we have to rule it out working on a linear basis. And that's really interesting because, of course, there are computational models of... Uh, of um, human language that work on a linear basis right mm. um and you know for many many years people thought well you know language gr- grammar is just about what word you can put after the previous word mm. um, and you know you you just i mean that, there's something very common sense about that you say you know the and then you're like okay now i want an adjective or noun and then you say big and then you, now you're like oh i either want another adjective or a noun and you know you just build up your sentence on this linear basis but actually, languages don't seem to work like that. So I'd, I'd be hesitant to say it's I'd be hesitant to say that the hierarchy is evidence you need universal grammar. I would say the lack of non-hierarchical approaches uh, that languages could take uh, is evidence that. We need something to say you need the hierarchical approach. Mm. And that would suggest that there's some little thing, maybe like the hook that I mentioned that says we need this in language and not something else. Mm. And that's why I think the computational models you see are not really working in the same way as humans work. We have a sense of structure, Mm. right? And that's what we have. Uh, and, And maybe that's the structure that we use for everything, but we also have quite strong psychological skills to linearize things and piaget talked about this so why don't we use those that's the that's the argument really i
1: think yeah can can I ask you about one thing you just mentioned, which was about the case of um, of speech errors that are related to marking agreement with the with the closest noun, the kind that you said is going to be highly frequent, and then when a yeah. kid makes that mistake, somebody corrects them and says, "No, it should be the other noun that's far away. That's the one we agree with," and then they go, "Oh right, I got it now." You know, so there's a kind of cartoon version does that right well that's that's a, a scenario what happens when somebody makes a mistake so this is related to your thing in chapter four about um the question of semiticus the the poverty of the stimulus yeah uh, discussion yeah. so I wanted I wanted to to transition into that topic really mm, but yeah. um you have to come down quite heavily um to say there is just insufficient data in a child's linguistic input so therefore we have to posit that they have that they're imposing structure from uh you didn't want to use the word innate but there's got to be something non-blank slate like that they are bringing to the table in order to impose that to fill in those gaps but regardless of how plausible it is that parents are really correcting children at that level of detail is it a separate question that children can make those mistakes um yet no final product grammars have that type of rule. Yeah, Is that the same thing as saying that that is an unlearnable language or is that could there be room for some social grammar regulating thing that may still be part of the language module or maybe part of the social cognition that goes back and says that kind of language is not going to work out here. So somehow there's a pressure to not do that, even though that mistake is makeable,
0: mm-hmm. which
1: kind of suggests that a language like that could be learnable.
0: Yeah. So I think it's really fascinating. We make such mistakes all the time. Kids will hear those mistakes. Right.
1: Mm.
0: Um, and uh, And so actually you might ask, well, why is that not something that feeds back into how the language is structured? All sorts of things do. So frequencies, for example... Um, feedback into grammatical structure. So if you look at... Um, so there's some work that Jen Smith and I did a while back on uh, on the agreement that you find with... So this is the same thing, right? The agreement you find with subjects in uh, Bucky, which is uh, a variety of English spoken up in the northeast coast of Scotland. Yeah. And um, they have a very particular rule that essentially says um, plural noun phrases have a singular uh, agreement with them or a plural agreement, but uh, plural um, pronouns, so the the pronoun they, forces plural agreement. So that's the general rule. Um, And we looked at different generations of the speakers and the old speakers, um, they use this uh, rule Irrespective of the type of verb, so they use it with main verbs and they use it with auxiliary verbs. The middle generation use it more with auxiliary verbs than with main verbs, and then the younger generation again use it more with auxiliary, even more with auxiliary verbs and main verbs. And you know, I, I don't know if Jen's uh, she probably has done this by now, but I bet you if we look at the youngest generation, they're only using it with auxiliary verbs. Hmm. So that would be a grammar, right? I mean, you've now got a new grammar, which is you have this particular rule for agreement and it occurs just with auxiliary verbs and not with main verbs. Why is this? Well, auxiliaries are really common and main verbs aren't. So there's more evidence for this for the auxiliaries. And so you get this kind of classic sociolinguistic change. But what you end up with is, although it's done by frequency, what you really end up with is a grammatical difference. So what the what you end up with is really um, the auxiliary verb does this and not just frequent verbs so the verb say is very frequent but it doesn't do this right you could you, you might get some varieties where you know some verbs hang on so in Shetland certain verbs still invert in questions like the verb no can um, so, so you do get these kind of archaic things that hang on for a little bit, but generally what happens is a, a change goes to completion and that that change can be affected by sociolinguistic factors totally.
1: Mm.
0: Weirdly, when we go back to your question about the mistakes made with these, uh, with uh, so it, the classic examples are something like, you know uh, the keys to the cabinet is on the table, mm. right? So you've got keys, plural, cabinet, is not the subject, but it's singular, and then you say is, yeah. right? Or vice versa, the key to the cabinets are on the table. So uh, those are those kinds of cases where you you get what's called an attraction error, you say the verb, and uh, it its form depends upon the immediately preceding noun phrase. Mm. So here's the question. Why isn't it the case that some variety of English, for example, has ended up making that its grammar in the same way as Bucky made its auxiliary verbs and not its main verbs undergo this particular agreement rule. Yeah. And that sort of tells me that there's something different between the two cases, mm-hmm. right? That is the, um, the Bucky agreement rule depends upon grammatical categories, subject, auxiliary verb, verb. Whereas the putative rule where the attraction error would end up being a grammar would have to depend upon linear order, linear adjacency. And it just seems to be a fact that grammars change along the direction of grammatical categories, you know, the the, the kind of contours that the grammatical categories carve out for you, but they don't change uh, along the direction of, of just one word being directly adjacent to the next, Mm. which is weird, right? the structure matters and the the just linear adjacency doesn't. So I think that that's um, that's like a kind of really interesting distinction between uh, two kinds of variation, if you like. Mm -hmm. One kind of variation, which is really part of grammar and feeds into grammatical change and is uh, fascinating from a sociolinguistic perspective. And another kind of variation, which I really think is fundamentally a processing effect, Mm -hmm. is an effect of your short-term memory, uh, simply overriding what is going on in your long-term memory when you're processing it. Um, And there's some evidence, some psycholinguistic evidence, that that is not a crazy idea. So I don't know if that answers the question. I don't think this is really... So so it's not a poverty of stimulus argument in any sense, but it is an argument that it's intriguing that the ways that languages change are ways that are shaped by grammar, fundamentally, and less so by processing. Although, you know, there are people like Hawkins and so on who would you know, totally think that grammar is also affected by processing. And uh, I think that there are, are aspects of processing which do affect grammar, but they tend to be aspects of processing uh, of structure and not of linear order. Mm -hmm. and i think hawkins would agree with that
1: so does that answer the question i think so you do talk about later in the book you talk about experiments where um people have been given languages to learn which do which are based on linear order and counting the third word along Mm. or something and and the people yeah am i right in remembering that they can learn those but they just learn them worse that that they're less accurate with learning them or is there some categoricity about they can't learn them
0: yeah, not, it's not really this categoristic, but like, uh, so the, the Musso experiments, uh, mm-hmm. there they actually just measured bits of the brain that light up. Uh, and you, you need to take all of these uh, neurolinguistic experiments, uh, you know, as... As evidence, but not necessarily as, you know, as done proof in any sense. But they, they showed the Broca's area, which is well known to be part of the languagey bit of the brain, uh, lights up for, um, for people learning artificial languages, which have natural, like, rules in them and other bits of the brain lighting up for, uh, cases where you have, um, uh, kind of unnatural linguistic rules in them mm. so it's i mean people especially adults are pretty good at solving linguistic problems and uh, some of those problems they solve by using the general puzzle solving capacity of the brain mm. and other ones they solve by using the linguistic capacities of the brain there's some recent work i read a paper actually it's not in the book because i just read it like a few week, a week ago or so on Uh, looking at uh, uh, kids' capacity to learn some of these weird uh, non-natural linguistic rules versus adults' capacities. Mm. And uh, in general, the kids um, were pretty bad at uh, the the unnatural rules and the adults were quite good at it, but the kids were pretty, both the adults and the kids were pretty good at the natural ones. Mm. And you might imagine that, again, that's just you know broad evidence it's not neurolinguistic. but you might imagine that there's a developmental thing where as kids uh get older they're better at solving more general puzzles but uh when as they're young while they're younger they can use other other parts of their brain the more languagey parts of the brain to solve puzzles that fall within their linguistic capacities mm-hmm. so i think there is evidence i i wouldn't you know I wouldn't run up and down the streets like waving my hands saying, oh my God, this is final proof. But uh, I think that the, the, there is some in- interesting evidence for, uh, for the distinct uh, neural and psych- psychological processing of natural linguistic rules versus unnatural ones.
1: Yeah. Okay. That's really interesting. So this is kind of like whether you just use your linguistic hooks or whether you use some other hooks and you get more hooks as you grow older. Exactly. Um, So I just wanted to go... That's exactly it. Yes. I wanted to go back (laughs) onto the poverty of the stimulus and particularly about the point at which you would be happy to run up and down the street waving your hands with regard to the poverty of the stimulus, because I think you're probably already more or less at that point, aren't you? You you know, when I said, oh, parents correct this mistake... um, it's like your response was, do they really? You <laughs> know? So I think
0: the evidence is that they generally don't, right? So I mean people have checked. Yeah, but is it so is
1: that that is it the evidence that they don't, or is there an absence of evidence that they do? This is the question I'm really trying to get at, because um there are several experiments where people have looked at, you know, tens of thousands of child directed um utterances yeah. and so on. I always wonder, isn't there some possibility that they could have also been reading a book at the same time or that grandma came in and said, oh, you shouldn't speak like that? You know that there are so many informal routes and life is so messy that how do you control this? It would be unethical to restrict a child's development to the extent that would really yeah. nail the poverty of the stimulus argument
0: i mean that 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 is that is the sematicus question yeah. right so like you know the the ancient ruler that herodotus talked about who was meant to have put uh, a brother and sister on an island and or in a hill somewhere and not let anyone talk to them mm. uh, and then see what language they spoke um So, you know, I mean, as you said, you can't really do this, but uh, I mean, I talk a bit in the book about the work of Susan Golden Meadow, um, which is on sign language. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, And there we have something which is a little bit like a naturalistic version of that experiment. In as much as if you have um, kids who are profoundly deaf, it's quite common that they don't have deaf parents. And so their parents aren't able to sign to them they can't use sign language with them so the kids don't pick up sign language and what they do instead because they want to communicate obviously is they do use gesture Mm -hmm. and if you look very carefully at that gesture like golden meadow has then what you find is that has a number of what you might think of as the hallmarks of combinatorial ability that we talked about earlier on Um, so i think that 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 kind of evidence and then obviously evidence from what happens when these individuals who are called home signers get together and start signing to each other then you tend to get something which begins to look more and more like a complex language those kinds of evidence makes me think make me think see i just did one of yes, those uh got those things <laughs> those kind of evidence make me what what, what? anyway uh, um th- that kind of evidence makes me think um that Uh, there is something going on where the mind is shaping the linguistic, the data that comes in uh, in a way that uh, is consistent, at least with how languages work in general. So I discussed this um, case in the book of uh, Chiapas, a family of signers in Chiapas, Mexico, who um, essentially developed a, Sign language, a family sign language, because a number of them were, were congenitally deaf, which has these uh, classifier structures in them. So when you when you count something, you can't just say "those two chickens," you have to say "those two round thing chicken" or something like that, right? Mm. And that's a very common structure. You find that in Chinese. You find it in uh, numerous South American languages. Uh, it's it's called a classifier structure, uh, and it has a very common look to it across languages people have even argued for example that the plural mark in english is just the same thing as the classifier is at some level um, so um, where did they get that from is the question hmm. they're deaf uh, they don't speak the uh the surrounding languages and uh and they come up with classifiers how does that work hmm. So I think I mean, and that's just one case. I think there are lots of cases like that. So those are cases where you make the input incredibly poor, right? Mm. So uh, you know, the input is very, very, very poor because they can't hear any of the people talking to them. Yeah, they can see their gestures, um, but they can't hear them talking to them. And what they do is they end up with things that are. I, I'm not going to say they're, you know, they've really got perfect, you know, fully functioning rich language but they end up with things which look very familiar to linguists yeah. um, and they seem to have the combinatorial ability that we talked about earlier on. And uh, so if that's not in the input, where is it coming from? And actually, um, Golden Meadow and Charles Yang and others have done kind of careful statistical analysis of um, the structure of the these signers' gestures over a long period of time, and also their carers' gestures, hmm. and you can show statistically that they have very, very different signatures in terms of how they combine, hmm. so there's something so the kids are doing something the parents are not doing with our gestures, and the kids are doing something which looks like language as far as we can tell, and yet the kids are not getting any linguistic input because they're deaf and no one's sign no one's giving them sign language hmm. that that strikes me as a fairly. I wouldn't quite be at the point of running up and down the um, street with my hands waving because all of these things are, you know, all of these things are subject to analysis. I am not an expert in sign language. So, you know, other people might say, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that it's exactly this or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, but those kinds of things make me cautiously optimistic that the, the claims that I'm making are not crazy. And that's probably what I wanted to say. I wanted, you know, with this book, I just want to say this is a very insightful and sensible way of looking at yeah. language. Uh, don't dismiss yeah. it. Yeah.
1: I mean, one way I would want to immediately dismiss it would be to say just to ask uh, the question about Goldwin- Golden Meadows research, the question about what input those kids have had so they they definitely haven't had you know a signed language input because their parents couldn't sign mm-hmm. with a native-like ability but mm-hmm. what, what, who's to say they haven't been reading spanish or something i don't know if they these pre Well, they're too young they're too young to be reading okay oh yeah okay all right well
0: that's no, a good good point they don't they don't have any spanish or english or whatever i mean they just mm-hmm. they don't have that other language this is their only Mode of communication; they're too young to uh, learn to read, or they're illiterate.
1: Right. Yeah. The other point would be about um whether there's some kind of general feature pool, where it's such that each kid has one grammatical thing that they manage to negotiate with their parents, and then when you bring together twenty kids with mm. complementary uh, grammatical elements, that they can combine those together. I'm not denying the fact that they would need to have some bespoke linguistic yeah. hooks in the mix here, you know, but but there could be my question is really about how certain we can be what the balance of input versus stuff that was on their slate yeah. at birth I don't,
0: I don't think it needs very much I mean like uh, I mean I I guess the question is okay so what are the alternative analyses that are compelling mm. um and you know that that would be so if you look at the Nicaraguan case people have argued well actually some of those kids had some sign language from some other places and maybe that would be enough and so no. on um i i mean i again i'm not an expert on on uh the complex and fairly controversial details of that um uh, and i know that there's a controversy about it uh i don't know with, with respect to the susan golden meadow um work uh they the, the, it, it was pretty closely controlled and it was longitudinal. It was over a period mm. of time. Um, I don't mm. think that there was evidence that the kids had from other signers um, as to how to do stuff in sign language. Um, they really yeah. were having their parents' input. Um, but yeah. I do think there is an absolute rule for interaction. Yeah. So yeah. I think that, you know, the interaction is really crucial um, because the interaction allows then the kids to develop the grammars that they come up with in more sophisticated ways. And I think it's very intriguing that the ways that they end up... Uh, so, I mean, the, the famous Nicaraguan case, you know, if you look at how Nicaraguan sign language works, it's, it's pretty complex. Yeah. Uh, and it's full of things that look very richly like a normal grammar looks. Yeah. Um and that happened very fast, yeah, like um, and it happened when the kids all interacted, so that's kind of you know, I mean, I don't think you need very much you know universal grammar to explain that, but I think you need some, you need yeah. something in there, yeah, or else you just expect to get gestures,
1: yeah, um I just wanted to move on to a couple more ideas that you have in the book, um which were related to inventing languages you say inventing languages can give us a good insight into how natural languages work in chapter five which is called impossible patterns Mm. um can you say a bit more about what you're doing inventing languages Uh, and I wanted to ask you a few different parts of that because you started off saying the the use of that in basically in tv and fiction but there's also I know you use that in teaching as well and and to explain questions or address questions that are part of formal linguistics as well so can you say a bit more about what you're doing with made-up languages.
0: Yeah, I'm totally bemused and surprised that uh, constructed languages, as they're usually called, have become such a thing. <laughs> I mean, so when I said to you, like, you know, um, you know, my mum and dad were like, what is David doing upstairs making up languages at the age of twelve when he should be out playing football? You know, I I mean, that's what I did. I was kind of a weird, nerdy kid. Um, and I think there are a lot of weird, nerdy kids out there doing something quite similar, and we know that from people like Tolkien and stuff, yeah. right? Um but the constructed languages uh, as a hobby um, idea has been something that is almost thought to be i mean shameful is too long is too strong a word, but pe- you know, people are, who do that there's something weird about them right in fact, Tolkien has an essay um about this a really nice essay actually called uh, a Secret Vice, <laughs> which is about making up languages rather than anything else um and So I started using it in teaching a few years ago. Um, I mean, linguists have always used made-up languages in teaching because they're more amenable to creating problem sets than real Mm. languages are. Um, But actually, I started teaching a class um, a few years back where I thought it would be a cool idea to get um, students to use all the linguistics that they knew to build their own languages mm. so it came out of this experience i had where a tv program asked me to make up some languages for them and so i hadn't done that for quite some time uh, but it's such fun it's such a it's just a fascinatingly fun thing to do i totally love it um, and of course, like, you know, I've been doing linguistics for like 30 years now. So I know a lot more than I did when I was 12. So my languages look a little bit better than they did then. <laughs> but yeah, and, and um, I've, I find like the students really get into it. They do all sorts of crazy things. Like they record songs in their language. They make these really beautiful uh, art pieces with their language. Wow. So it really engages the students yeah. to to think about quite complex linguistic issues. I mean, I think some people started it thinking it might be a DOS. <laughs> and then we, when we got to lecture lecture th- three and I'm telling them about Navajo internally headed relative clauses or whatever, <laughs> they're like, oh no. Um, but I, I think that you know it's, it's a great way to teach. And I've actually been extending that um, and beginning to use it. So I'm working with a, a charity called the uh, Centre for Literacy and Primary Education here in London to use – essentially getting kids to create languages as a means of improving their engagement with reading Mm. so you can get them really to develop their phonological awareness which is a really focal part of reading by getting them to begin to make up words to understand what words they can make up what sounds they want in their words i get them you know I've been mainly teaching teachers how to do this, um, but we do a thing like we we create an island. The kids then populate the island, and they give it names, and they have words for volcano and whatever. And they can have a lot of fun drawing, and then they develop a writing system for it. And I ran a summer school where I did that for secondary school kids, and I'm about to work with another with a librarian to do something very similar, um, uh, another secondary school. So it's it's a I think it's a technique this idea of making up languages that you can extend across the whole educational lifespan. And of course it's reasonably trendy these days because you've got not just things like Klingon and the Elvish languages from uh, Lord of the Rings, but we have really rich use of created, of of constructed languages in uh, say game of Thrones or an avatar uh, where, I mean the game of Thrones ones made up by David, uh, Peterson are really impressive languages and they are integral to the plot of those uh, of those um, TV programs and they are heard by millions of people. Mm. So it's, you know, it's a very cool thing, I think. And and the kids like it. I have great deal of fun teaching it, but then connected to that, you know, I think you can also, you know, we've been using them as linguists in teaching for many years in some fashion or other. But I think you can also use them in science. And so the work that I mentioned with uh, Jenny Culbertson um, earlier on, that uses made-up languages. We, we've we made up a language called Napio, uh, and we that language, uh, it's pretty minimal. It basically has three nouns and it's like four words for colours and three words for numbers and two words for this and that. Um, but we use that with our speakers of English and with speakers of Thai and with our speakers of Kitharaka. And we modify it a little bit depending upon their native language. And we use that essentially as a means of testing out what um, inherent biases they might have to organize uh, the adjectives and numerals and nouns and so on in their languages. So you can use it scientifically as well. Um, and we've been using it scientifically in syntax, which is a bit new. Uh, But people have been using it scientifically in uh, phonology for quite some time now, Mm. uh, making up, using made up languages to test aspects of phonological awareness and phonological rules. So, yeah, I think it's a, it's a really cool thing. And in the book, I kind of use made up languages also as a means of a thought experiment. Right. So, you know, if you make up a language, you can think beyond what, human language is but that means we need to think what is a human language and you know so that that comes out i think in you know like for example in the film arrival there you have a language which is meant to go well beyond human languages uh and I, i use in the book not that example but various other examples which attempt to say well you could make up a language that would be like this but human languages don't work like it
1: um, I wanted to come back to a couple of things you just mentioned, which are, I mean, you you started off by saying this was a geeky thing upstairs, you know, uh, a socially isolating kind of enterprise for a, a lot of kids. Um, and then, but now it's kind of, as you said, it's popular with Game of Thrones and so on. So it's kind of like Revenge of the Geeks, you know, um, it's time has come. Um, yeah, totally. But, so that's great for getting children interested. Um, but you also talk about authenticity of the language and that it's integral to the plot. And that you were concerned when you were making up language for Beowulf, I think it was that you that you that you yeah. knew this thing had the potential to become a whole, a whole social ecosystem with people learning it and and that it would be very important to them, you know, which and, it totally
0: didn't, right? Yeah, <laughs> but it
1: could have done. <laughs> it, could have it still, done. Could. Yeah, you know, that wasn't it still, language, I don't think. Yeah, it still could, uh, but but something, some, you know, the the. I don't know if it's true but they I I've seen it cited that Klingon has more speakers than Welsh that kind of thing you know so yeah the, yeah it, and it becomes a, an important part of people's life so there's the kind of people taking it seriously and getting something out of the out of the fiction that is kind of valuable as an art as a piece of art but there's also the kind of um, legitimizing this nerdy interest and showing children that this is um, hmm. It's okay to be interested in something um, like as esoteric as this. And, and it actually, it can tell us real things about what humans are like. And look, there's such a thing as linguistics that you could study if you want to do this yeah, in your career. Totally. So it's ticking a lot of boxes. But with regard to the social justice dimension, there's also this idea of using a, lang- a constructed language to achieve some social end. And you, you mentioned Le Guin. I don't know Le Guin's work much, but I know she wrote a book where there was a language that grammaticalized gender in a way that avoided using male and female dichotomies. Do you mm, think Do you think there's th- any role in, in this conlang stuff within either within the teaching or just more broadly to explore those kinds of social justice uh, equity dimensions?
0: So I think you're thinking of Suzette Hayden Elgin's native tongue ah. rather than Le Guin. So in that she, uh, she created a language called Ladan, um, which uh, yeah, which was, specifically organized so as to uh remove the possibility of sexism was mm-hmm. the idea. Uh-huh. Actually Le Guin did have a language that she invented. She had had a couple actually. Uh one uh for a book she wrote called The Dispossessed mm-hmm. uh which is about an anarchist colony in a moon and that language uh Pravic I think it was called. Uh that language uh doesn't have um any way to do um to possession, mm-hmm. right, because it's anarchist and you can't own anything in an right. anarchist society. It may also not have had gender, but I can't remember that. Mm. Um, so I think that, there, there, I mean, you could even think of Orwell's Newspeak, right, mm. like in 1984. So there is a sense in which this is, this is essentially a separate wharf-type question, mm. right? So how much does language control thought? And if you make up a language which looks in a certain kind of way... Can that then control the thoughts of uh the people that speak it, and that's been a trope in science fiction and there are, <clears throat> there are many many science fiction books which have done that some good, some not so good there's there's one called uh, there's one by Jack Vance, I think called the Languages of Poe, which is quite intriguing that's worth a read um and there was another one called The Embedding, where like they tried to teach kids. Uh, how to do multiple center embedding in their language so anyway yeah there's there's a bunch of uh, people who uh, have written that because it's a fascinating idea of course as linguists we know that any strong version of the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis is total rubbish so um, the best you can get is a very weak version of the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis It's not even clear to me that that's true um, where you know if you have certain words, certain lexical items, then uh, some of your um, uh, mental tasks become speedier. Mm-hmm. Um, or and there is work by uh, Boroditsky, which claims uh, something can be true for grammat something similar uh, is true for grammatical gender, where grammatical gender speakers of grammatical gender languages have particular connotations for particular kinds of words. Mm-hmm. But I mean. I don't mean, by that, and to be honest, it, it's so far away from the things that these science fiction writers have been talking about that it seems incredibly, uh, barely relevant. So I think mm-hmm. that the chances yeah. of you using constructed languages in this kind of method are, you know, there are, there are no hopers. But mm. I do think constructed languages are great for thinking about language, They're great for teaching about language and they can be great for researching language as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's more the angle I was going for as a thought experiment that you could use. You know, if you're going to use languages to teach about grammar, you could also use them to talk about. Gen, uh, sexism you know you could use them as a pedagogy oh, yeah no totally I, um, i'm sorry i'm maybe no so yeah sweet, but yeah but obviously there are still debates going on today about whether to you know discourse around the use of pronouns yeah uh, that's a that's a hot topic for right-wing commentators to get annoyed about yeah um people choosing their own pronouns and i noticed that your first example in the book Used the use the name Pat, which you then refer to as singular they. So this is kind of
0: I do well noticed. Yeah, my
1: a little, my a first... little flag went up. <laughs>
0: a good flag, I hope.
1: Yeah, no, yeah, that you might want to talk about this. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, I mean, I I I did that just because I. Uh, why not? Hmm. It's you know I yeah. I mean one of the th- one of the things that I think is uh interesting in writing a book for a popular audience is you want to reflect the diversity of the field that you're in. Yeah. I mean, you'll notice all the way through the book. I mean, there's, I mean, I think, you know, in terms of uh, authors I cite, there's a roughly even balance in terms of gender. Mm. Uh, You're right. I start off the book with a non-binary character called Pat, who I use singular they for. Obviously, I'm a gay man, so there's numerous, uh, examples throughout the book which, uh, just reflect aspects of, uh, of different people's kinds of lives mm. and different relationships. Um, so yeah, for me, uh, I guess it's important when you, uh, are putting something out there that it's a reflection of yourself. So, you know, I mean, this book is, you know, unapologetically about generative linguistics. Mm. But that doesn't mean to say that all these other things are not important or interesting to me. Um, and, you know, I do pick up on the sociolinguistic stuff near the end as well. So, you know, part of uh, part of that is just making sure that actually the book itself uh, is is reasonably diverse and, mm-hmm. and that people who might pick it up and read it uh, who, um, you know, are not coming from a highly privileged background will go, okay, yeah, linguistics is a kind of cool field because people are very accepting and mm. it's true linguistics in general is a very accepting field
1: yeah that's that's kind of what i was getting at with this social justice thing so from from the idea of saying geeks come and join us you know uh people who use non-binary pronouns come and join us you know this is yeah i, I got that sense from from reading it so that was really nice i'm really
0: pleased you did I'm, I'm pleased
1: you did yeah i wanted to ask about whether that is a kind of you know can that social justice dimension and the idea of giving back to the your research participants as well that that idea of Mm. reciprocity when you when you take people's time and 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 interview them in an intense way and learn about their language what how do you give back to that um society you know or, or those people those individuals at least um it is that just part of being a good person who happens to do linguistics or is that part of linguistics itself, that that social reciprocity and and justice angle? Are they separate things?
0: That is a great question. I don't know what the answer to that is. I mean, I think it's something that the field broadly socializes you into mm. i don't know if, uh, so i think maybe it's part of the field mm-hmm. uh it certainly strikes me that in general that that notion for example if you do field work um with a community that you figure out a way of making sure that you are also uh sensitive to the community's needs and giving back to the community in whatever way you can mm. i think that that is something which i i think linguists kind of feel naturally probably as part of their socialization into the field Mm. i mean so when you know when daniel and laurel and i did this work on on, um with the kiowa tribe you know part of that already at the start of the research we designed in um, ways to try and help with the revitalization of the language to provide materials that were in a more accessible fashion to members of the tribe yeah. to do uh work that was helpful in terms of you know people being able to read the stories that their great-grandparents might have told that they couldn't have otherwise read so we we try to factor in ways of of uh that and and with the current project in kenya it's similar we're trying to figure out ways of you know factoring in how this might help with teaching materials in the language we're looking at you know sort of keyboards uh, on phones uh, and um, also just the same thing collecting uh, as part of the data work we're also collecting stories from the local region that we will hope to then transcribe and publish and record uh, and make usable to local people and so on I mean uh, you kind of got to work with the community Mm. to figure out what they want as well but i think i don't think it's just being a good person i think that it is something that people in our field in general are sensitive to Mm. and want to do somehow
1: yeah um i just this this relates to you know on the one hand this um inclusive pronoun use but then you drew the line i don't think you explicitly um attacked linguistic prescriptivism anywhere in this book i think it was quite Um, you know you you didn't take that on in which is legitimate I think to avoid doing that because you kind of legitimate that discourse by by engaging with it some in some way
0: yeah I I decided not I mean I mainly didn't do that because there are so many books out there Mm. on linguistic prescriptivism uh you know so there's Lane Green's recent talk in the wild side there's virtually everything that David Crystal's ever written there's uh you know Rickford there's I mean actually Gretchen's book Mm. uh uh, um, there's lots Mm -hmm, of them right mm -hmm. then Murphy's book and so on so I think uh I was just steering clear of that I don't know whether it was a mistake I don't know whether people will still come to the book with a kind of prescriptivist view in mind but uh um I just didn't want to tackle it for Mm. for it wasn't so much not to legitimate the discourse it's Mm. more I felt that It was uh, something that's already being Mm. tackled very well by other people. And it has the capacity to kind of take over everything if you start talking about that.
1: Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. Just to let the other side, the real stuff take over for a bit then. The last couple of things I wanted to ask you about is if you could briefly say something about in particular binding, binding theory. And merge, which are two, oh. two yeah, <laughs> just quickly in the last few minutes. Just <laughs> two minutes, so binding theory and merge, yeah. <laughs> but you, you devote chapters to those, um, but yeah. why are those particularly good um, examples of your general thesis in this book about this uh, specialized language uh, structures?
0: So let me take, uh, so I wanted to say two things. One is going back to the whole question of the creative use of language, I wanted to talk about what it is. About us as humans, that that gives us the capacity to do the creative use of language. And one theory of that, uh, which I wanted to put forward, is Merge, uh, which is a very simple theory that essentially says um, that language really is organized along the lines of self-similarity. So I start off that chapter with a kind of you know take a deep breath. And then I talk about how the the uh, air goes into your lungs and the lungs branch and they branch and they branch again in this kind of self-similar fashion where each branching is like the previous branching. And that's an organisation of the world that we find all over the place. This goes back a little bit to the hooks, right? Mm-hmm. And we find this in language as well. And we can think of the hierarchy, the sense of structure that I talked about earlier on the book as being derived from this Very simple process whereby um, linguistic structure branches and branches and branches in a very in a similar way over and over and over again, and that's what gives you that branching gives you the infinite capacity. I mean, obviously not infinite use because we're not infinite beings, but it gives you in principle an infinite capacity. So that chapter was really just a discussion of that idea, and I needed to I needed to write that chapter in there. Because fundamentally, that's sort of the intellectual core of the book. That's, mm. what, that's what answers the question, which is what underpins our creative use of language. Mm. But there is a sort of interesting paradox in the book as well, which is that I say that, uh, you know, not just I, but linguists say, you know, language is unlimited. That's the name of the book, right? And that's merge gives you this unlimitedness. It's never ending. This open endedness. But at the same time, language is limited.
1: Mm.
0: not you know one it's hierarchical that's limited two if merge is right the hierarchical structure is binary not ternary or quaternary or whatever that's also limited three it involves discrete elements not continuous elements that's limited and four there are a bunch of other what i call laws of language in the book that limit it so i think of it a little bit like um i think of uh, prime numbers sorry not prime numbers let's say even numbers there's an infinite amount of even numbers, but, you know, three and seven are not in them. Mm. So you can have something which is unlimited in one sense, but deeply constrained in another. Mm. And I think that that's what human language is like. So I so the reason to talk about binding theory, so binding theory is just how noun phrases and pronouns uh, can be used to refer to the same entities. So if I say, you know, uh you know Anson said he was tired, he and Anson can refer to my partner. Mm. Right? Um, but if I say he said Anson was tired, he and Anson cannot refer to my partner. Mm. He must be someone different from Anson. Yeah. So there's a whole set of uh of phenomena like that where which regulate in language the relationships between noun phrases and pronouns. Uh, and they're normally known as binding theory. And so I wanted to use that as a reasonably accessible uh, phenomenon that people could get an intuitive sense of uh, and then show them that the linear approach to explaining those doesn't work. And actually, the structural approach does work. Um, And that this was, again, one of these things that you find in language after language after language. Mm. So the reason to do those chapters, one on merge and one on binding, is that merge is at the heart of the book and binding shows you that even though language is unlimited, at the same time, it's limited. So there's this uh, deep paradox, but it's not a paradox at all because you you can have uh, limited never-endingness in Mm. a sense. Mm.
1: Yeah, uh, just with regard to the acquisition of binding rules, uh, you, you use those as an example of why general cognitive processes like uh, chunking and analogy can't learn those rules, right? Yeah. Um, could, could you say a little bit more about why that rule is different from a rule you give the example of marking the past tense by adding ed on the end? That's a rule that we could learn by analogy, whereas yeah. binding isn't.
0: So I think that uh, the the argument's a little bit complex, but um, it based. I think there are two sides to it. One is it seems unlikely you can learn um, the fact that binding is hierarchically restricted. So I said earlier on, you can't say he said that Anson is tired, meaning he and Anson both referring to my partner. But I can say um, you know uh, that he was tired didn't surprise Anson because he'd been out all night. <laughs> And there, the first he can now refer to Anson. So the rule can't be as simple as if you put a pronoun before a name, you can't have the pronoun and the name refer to the same person. It involves some kind of structure. Okay, so that's one aspect of it. So you might ask yourself, well, um, since most of the evidence I'm ever going to get is that He is of the sort of, um, he said that Anson was happy, right? He said that Anson was tired, where you just have he preceding Anson and you're not able to refer. Why don't you make the actual error, that make the leap by analogy to say, okay, in all cases where the pronoun precedes the name, I can't have the pronoun refer to that name. So analogy fails in that case. Otherwise, that he was tired didn't surprise Anson should have the same impossibility of the co-reference of he and Anson as he said Anson was tired. right? In both cases, he precedes Anson, but in one, you can't have them co-refer and the other one, you can. This is probably going to be too complex for just an oral explanation but anyway that's the that's the point analogy doesn't extend so you need a theory that says when can analogy extend and when it can ex- and when can't it extend mm-hmm. there are such theories out there so for example within construction grammar people will say well let's appeal to something else it's got to do with the information structure or it's got to do with the discourse structure or it's got to do with something else i have not found any of those alternative explanations compelling and mm-hmm. i would say some why in the book <clears throat> so you know but you can't just have analogy then there's a deeper question which is well why are those other things relevant why don't we have languages where you just use analogy mm. so there's two sides to it which is how do you learn it given what analogy says how do you actually get the data that seems to be the true data that's one question, and then there's another one, which is why are no languages organised along the lines that analogy would predict? Mm. Both of those require or ask for a theory of, you know, what the actual data is. So, um, you know, and I think that uh, I think that the alternative theories are are not as uh, uh there's something not as compelling to me so i go back to this paper that i mentioned earlier on uh that Piers Fanonius and i wrote and we actually spend a long time in that paper looking at examples like you know uh every woman said she was happy um where she has to co-refer with each woman that you're thinking about right mm. So every woman said she was happy. that can have a meaning where it's like every woman, so you know woman a said woman a was happy, woman B said woman B was happy, and so on, mm-hmm. or it can have another meaning, which is all the women said independently said that you know Susan was happy, mm-hmm. one particular woman and those that ambiguity goes away sometimes and it comes back some other times it again depends upon structure. I mean, the chances of learning that by analogies seemed to me to be implausible, and in the book we went through an alternative. Sorry, not the book. Sorry, in that paper we went through an alternative theory of this um, of, of this approach, which appeals to uh, appeals essentially to information structural effects, and we just showed it doesn't work. Hmm. So you know that's proper linguistics, and I didn't really want to put that in the book because it gets very complex. And one of the things that I discovered when I was writing this book is that linguistic arguments. Are highly complex. I mean, mm. so <laughs>
1: you just discovered that?
0: No? <laughs> no, but I mean, you know, we as linguists, or I as a linguist, you know, I'll read a syntactic argument that will take up a paragraph in a paper, and then if I try and explain that argument to people who don't have any linguistics, I realize it takes a whole chapter of a book, uh, because that's what happens when you're in a fairly complex science with its own terminology and its own jargon and stuff. You can you can compress stuff and you get into a particular way of thinking and you're able to, you know, follow arguments that are actually incredibly complex um, uh, with ease, takes a long time. I mean, you go from not being able to do it when you're an undergraduate student to not even thinking about it when you're, uh, when you've been doing it for 25 years. Um, but yeah, so, so I think that the reason I did the binding argument in the book um, was it it felt to me like one that was doable in a chapter without asking too much of the readers, giving them kind of resting points in between time so that they could follow along with it and get the gist of the idea uh, without necessarily going to the horrendous complexity of, like, the argument that I made with uh, Svenonius in that paper.
1: All right, well, um, I think... Um, we've talked about most of the aspects of the book now for quite a long time so I don't want to keep you any longer you're going off to the Chinese embassy in a minute anyway I think
0: yeah I've got to go and get a visa because I'm going to China to talk to them about linguistics
1: great sounds great um, so I'd just like to say thank you very much again uh, David Adger for making time to talk about your research and your new book Language Unlimited the science behind our most creative hour